play and then you know okay so it is july 21st 2017 we're in the financial district and i'm doing a recording with sunila mubai for the new york trans oral history project which seeks to document the lives of trans folks uh, living in new york um, and you know their experiences um so i'm excited to do this this oral history and i'm grateful that you you are here Thank and you, you made it down here me. yeah um so sunila can you can you tell me where you were born and a little bit about that place like my parents or just uh, i was born in new york but it's just where i was born like literally because i went uh, i was taken to india to new delhi like just a little while after i was born okay so your early years were in new delhi yeah yeah till the age of eight okay can you tell me a little bit about new delhi uh well i grew up with my grandma and my uncle from my dad's side and his family uh in a sort of biggish house and went to catholic school till i was eight or so then i lived here for in the suburbs for three years then i went back again can you um tell me a story from like your elementary school years uh, in new delhi well i have a photo um i have a photo of mine i think from kindergarten or first grade i'm not sure um where i'm in my school uniform uh with like it's like a shirt with like the school tie and i'm looking very serious and it seems like i have like uh coal on my eyes but i don't remember that at all i can show it to you actually it's kind of cute uh can you explain for the folks who may not know what coal is uh like black eyeliner um give me a moment this is oh, definitely no worth seeing no yes. problem oh my god that looks like a really old school kind of photo you're not yeah. smiling you're <laughs> yeah it's like sepia colored yeah <laughs> Now, was that for the school? I think it was for the school, like, year yearbook or something like that. Mm. Or my, like, school ID or something. Can you tell me a little bit about this Catholic school? Well, oh, so one funny thing is um, I, I'm not, I don't really remember this, but my grandma, everyone uh, entering the school had to do, a, like, an interview. Um like an entrance interview because they love like examining people in India from like age two or something. So in the entrance interview, the like uh, print headmaster or whatever, um, apparently it's claimed that he showed me, I was like th three and a half or four. And if he showed me a purple toothbrush and said, what color is this? And I apparently said mauve. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So then you were admitted immediately. 
for your precocity. Apparently, apparently it seems like that. <laughs> I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not. Well, it sounds like you had an early aptitude or uh, yeah. for language. For move. <laughs> for move, yeah. yeah. So, so in this Catholic school, was it was it an English language school? Yeah, was it was it? English language. Okay. Um, uh, and they taught Hindi as a second language. Um, and yeah, it was uh, all the like males in my family since my dad since my family came to New Delhi after partition attended the school so I was just also like put into it so it you have a family legacy there yes what? a little at least like four people in my like extended family went there what may I ask what's the name of the school St. Columbus St. Columbus it's a it was founded by Irish Catholic uh, brothers sometime in the 20th century I don't know so it was ca- Catholic not Jesuit uh, I believe it was Catholic, Catholic yeah okay and and so where can you tell me a little bit about where your family was from you said they came after um, partition can yeah you explain a little bit well this that? is just talking about my dad's family to be uh, to be clear um, mm, my dad's family are Kashmiri Hindus or pundits as you as you love to point out <laughs> um, uh, ethnic like I guess that's an ethnicity um, but my none of my immediate family lived in Kashmir ex- um, they my grandma and my dad and uncle and, uh, and his siblings were born in Lahore which is now in Pakistan and they came to Delhi in 1947 after the um, sectarian violence of the partition um, when they had to flee Lahore because it was now part of Pakistan and so being non-Muslims their lives were in danger Um, and so yeah they they had to pack their bags and uh, leave, and eventually they ended up in in Delhi. So what? So, um, I, I mean, I know they lived as refugees for a few months or so. Okay. Um, when they arrived in what's yeah now, India. Yeah, like when after they crossed the border. Do you know at all what their lives were like when they were living in Lahore? Um. What they did. Things I know like my my great grandfather was like uh, worked for the British government, um, I think in the postal service or something. And I, my grandfather uh, was a uh, my dad's father was a railway engineer, um, and yeah, I think they were from like a upper middle class family, and they spoke Urdu as their like mother tongue even though they were not Muslims but pretty much everyone who was educated regardless of uh, sect uh, Urdu was like their and English were their uh, their lingua francas and so they okay so then they came to New New Delhi Mm -hmm. eventually sometime after 1947 yeah do you did you grow up with any stories about what that time was like for them? 
Yeah, I mean, my grandmother would uh, talk about how, like, she left her lovely home behind in Lahore and everything was taken away and so on, but without, like, any kind of sense of, like, sectarian resentment against Muslims as a Mm -hmm. sort of blanket category, whereas apparently her brother was very bitter and, Mm -hmm. uh, like, blamed the Muslims for everything. Um... I know they kind of had to start, like, all over again, although my grandfather was, was retained his job uh, in the railways, and so they were able to, like, settle down and uh, live in, like, have, like, a decent house and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, and that's how I think... I'm not sure how exactly my dad and uncle uh, ended up in this this catholic school but um i know it was really different back then like there were hardly any cars in the street that's what my dad always says like he he was able to bike to school comfortably every day um so um i'm trying to think what else did they? Did your family ever have a chance to go back to Lahore? Or no. Um, the a couple of my grandma's brother went back a few years later. I know to see what was left of their home and so on. Um, and my grandmother herself didn't get to go back until just a few years ago, a few, like ten years ago, a few years before she died, um, when uh, my dad was going for a a wedding and he managed to get her a visa uh, for Pakistan Um, uh, and she went she visited the house where she was born in the old city of Lahore and the people living in it apparently still they knew about it was her it was named after her father and they still called it by his name so they were like really happy that she had come back and were like really wanted her to stay with them and so on wow that must have been extremely emotional yeah yeah she was really old by that time um but she still remembered a lot and uh um and it was like a great uh my dad said that it added like five years to her life or something Wow. Yeah. To go back and to yeah to connect. to connect with her like where, where she was born. Wow. It and was like a in the old city, so it was more like you know one of the, the wall. It was in like similar to like an Arab home or you know with like a with courtyard. With a family house, and you have different floors. Yeah, with a courtyard. Generation. But they, she was only born there, but then. He, uh, I think my great-grandfather moved out of there into, like, a bungalow-type house uh, in the new city. Um, And that's where she mostly grew up, I think. Hmm. And... And besides your father, did your did she have other children? Yeah, I have an uncle and an aunt. My dad's the middle child. Okay, got it. Yes, you mentioned your uncle, yeah. sorry. They all, they went to, like, 
kindergarten, I think, or something before, or first grade until up till partition. Um, so they got to learn how to sing "God Save the King" in Urdu. Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. That's that's a useful yeah. skill, yeah. I'm sure. Um, so okay, so they're in New Delhi. So then, uh, and they were able to get a home mm-hmm. and attend this Catholic school yeah. that you were <laughs> in, right? Um, so after you were eight years old, mm-hmm. where where did you go to school? Uh, I was here for three years. Here being New York. In in Long Island for three years. Um, and then I went back, when, then when I went back, um, my old school wouldn't, like, have me back. How come? Um, I don't know, I get, I'm not really sure why, but I think school admissions are, like, super competitive, and if you leave, you know, they don't really want to give you your place back. And to, so I went to a different, I went to an international school uh, that was run on the British cur- curriculum. So, can you tell me a little bit about what that means, the British curriculum? Uh, it's the the same curriculum that they do in the UK. Basically. So, like the like A levels, A levels, O levels, and A levels. Yeah. Okay. There's an extra year of high school. And and are were you learning Hindi there as well? No, I it so in this school Hindi was optional, and like in the Indian curriculum, it's mandatory until 10th grade until your first like major exams and then it's but here it's not optional mm. i mean it it's not mandatory so i took french instead i see yeah and um can you but ta- i learned like because i was in primary school um uh i learned like at least to read hindi but I don't know. I can't really like read it very fluently or anything. And so, when you went back to New Delhi, were you living in the same house? Yeah, in the same house, literally <laughs> the same bed. Can you tell me a little bit about um, some things that you liked to do when you were growing up, mm-hmm. like for fun, or it was mostly playing cricket in the park, as a as a that was like the main. Uh, daily activity even though I sucked at sports and always but that was like pretty much the main the main thing apparently I don't know I don't I I was too I was too little to like be able to remember but I would demand to be taken to the rail museum every Sunday when I was like younger the rail museum as in a museum to the railway? The yeah, like a museum of the, the like, railway, you know, of the of trains and, you know, of, like, the Indian rail, because the railways are a big thing. And, and this India. is where your grandfather had, was Yeah, rail. yeah. I didn't, my grandfather died before I was born, but um, I think his, my uncle, who I grew up with, like, loved trains also so I think that's why um, I don't remember this very well but I don't doubt it I guess and when you were growing up can you tell me a little bit what kind of messages you got about gender or Um, I 
had a very Victorian upbringing, I think, when it came to gender and sexuality. Um, it wasn't very aggressive masculinity, I think, that I was raised with, but it was definitely, there was, like, some masculinity and also going to an all-boys school at an early age. Um, there was, like, a certain... It was assumed at home that, like, all my friends would be boys. Um, although that we had, like, neighbors that had daughters who's, who I played with also. Um, but... Yeah, at the same time, though, I, like, because I was, like, raised by my grandmother and she was really overprotective, I think I got a lot of, like, feminine energy. Um, and I think I had a certain kind of... Uh, that was always, like, a part of me. Um, and I remember one time in school we had to... There was some kind of pageant for one of the, like... Uh, religious festivals like the Hindu religious festivals and I was chosen to like dress up as one of the goddesses or something I think and apparently like I looked so good in it or I did it so well that it was like I got made fun of um and I remember that was like kind of disturbing for me or like you know sort of like I didn't I didn't want to do it or it was like, why well, Why did it, you know, why was it such a good fit or something like that? Do you remember how you felt playing uh, this goddess or what that experience was like? Uh, I remember feeling super embarrassed uh, during the performance. It wasn't very long or anything. Um, but yeah, there was this kind of like a sort of you were like the unlucky one who had to play like the female figure or whatever. Can you tell me a little bit about your grandmother and like describe her for me and who she was? Uh, well, um, she was a very, she was like very strong woman. Um, I think she basically kept our family together after the partition and uh, um, prevented anything and kind of like um, was she was she never like had an official job but at the same time she was very like active in the community and um, and kind of like one of the more progressive voices I think amongst her relatives um I think with me she was kind of a little different because um ooh, my mom being mentally ill and like she felt I was kind of a a special responsibility that she had to take care of um I know that she wanted to be a singer uh she was apparently had a beautiful uh voice um and could have been a professional but it was still not like it was still frowned upon at that uh at like at that time because uh perform like public performance was associated with like being a courtesan or whatever um 
but she i think she um she continued to sing in like family functions and things like that what kinds of things did she sing uh like indian classical music basically um like and she played the harmonium oh almost, okay yeah. like north indian yeah north indian classical music yeah, yeah. um I guess we'll, we can geek out about that yeah. after this oral history, <laughs> so we don't take up that much time. I don't know that much about it, mm. but I know something a little bit. Yeah. I um, When I was walking uh, to B&H mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, I passed a restaurant called uh, Patiala Restaurant. Oh, okay. I was like, oh yeah, Kavali music. Oh. You know? Um, the Patiala school, you know. Yeah, of Kavali. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Patiala that's a is a town in right. Punjab. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, no, but that's a different different thing. But, but th- that's apparently a stereotype of Muslims in Bollywood that they just right. they sing Kawalis all the time. Right, right. Well, that there was um, a guy I went to school with who actually wrote a paper comparing mm. jazz musicians in um, pre-code or well not pre-code but um, in Hollywood film mm-hmm. uh, at the turn of the century to uh, the representation of Muslim mu- musicians in early Bollywood mm-hmm. film. And there are a inc- very striking yeah. number of parallels Yeah. Um, on lots of levels. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that's, wow. So she, okay, so she would sing at family functions. She's mm-hmm. And, and so at like at larger functions also. Did you ever do singing or any kind of music? Um, or I tried a little bit, but I don't think I ever had an aptitude. <laughs> much of an aptitude for it um i mostly had an aptitude for memorization ah yeah okay and how um, did that manifest itself when you were growing up um not i think uh yeah we had in school we had like there was like some class where you had to memorize really cheesy poems um and like repeat them i think i was Oh, I was good at that. Or um, I, like, learned the rules of chess when I was six or something. But I was never, like, good at the game itself. (laughs) Like, I wasn't a grandmaster by ten or something. Right. Right. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. Um, Wow. Okay. So... So, okay, so you're in New Delhi. Yeah. You're in... So did you do high school in New Delhi yeah, as well? Yeah, Okay, I, so you went all through the A levels or the O yeah, levels or whatever yeah. levels. Um, and and then you... Wh- where did you... What, what were your thoughts around your next step when you were finishing high school? Um, well, it was assumed that I would go to college in, in the U.S., um but i think i just naturally gravitated to new york um given that i was born um given that i had a somewhat of a connection and some family in the area um and also like it just seemed like the most natural thing so um, I applied to Columbia and NYU, and I got into Columbia. Um, and I don't think it was probably the best 
fit for me as a college, but it was definitely good to be in New York. And was that the... Uh, let me just... So I just had to change the card because the card was mm. full, so we're just going to back up a little bit. Sure. Um, so, okay, so you lived mostly in New Delhi, mm -hmm. you came to New York, you had a connection here, mm -hmm. and you were talking a little bit about how um, things felt a little like socially strange, I guess, mm -hmm. when you were studying yeah. in undergrad. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Um, it it changed a lot for sure um, by the time I finished um, and also around the time I was starting was also around the time I came out as uh, as trans and then later genderqueer so it was um, it was like a very difficult it was an intense time for me um, I mean, I think I, it's something I needed to do for sure. Um, but it wasn't, gender wasn't like as, uh, I think it's definitely changed in the last few years where it's become, being trans has become more like a not common thing. And it, get, uh, it wasn't that common uh, at that time. Can you tell me what year that was? Like the early 2000, 2003 or so. Um, the first, I was supposed to start college in 2002, but I just needed like a year to get used to living here. And it was, yeah, it wasn't as, the transition wasn't as smooth as I thought. Um, and Colombia also wasn't like the queerest place um it still isn't but it wasn't at that time also like they kind of had reached gay but they hadn't <laughs> um they hadn't really reached uh uh trans at that time um and i guess like coming from a very like achievement driven uh sort of educational background I kind of was hoping that it would be a little different but uh, at Columbia it was still like most people were extremely achievement uh, driven um, and uh, it was like a pressurizing sort of atmosphere although not to the same um, extent and I guess just also like the way that people socialized and related to each other was not kind of the way that I was uh, used to and I hadn't I hadn't never really had a very easy time socially either so at some point like I f realized like I wasn't comfortable living in the dorms so I decided to like move out and um, sublet a room instead because I felt more comfortable. Um, stuff like that, I guess, and um, yeah, and I like I had I was kind of 
young and very like eager to prove my like intellectual ability to argue and so I ended up having a lot of like run-ins with um with TAs and professors and so on and I guess I I had had this like impression that in the in America every you know the in academic atmosphere was not strict and rigid like it was in India where you have to like bow down to the teacher's feet all the time and call them sir and ma'am but I discovered that there's still like a lot of hierarchy and uh deference and that you know you kind of were expected to know your place but in a more sort of subtle way where you had to pretend to be equal but you're not really equal so that was like a very difficult thing to adjust to me uh for me to adjust to and um when you when you came out as trans did you have other trans people or gender non-conforming people you were in connecting with at that time did you have um like some circle of support or any of that um a little bit um not i had a few queer friends then uh in sophomore year i did manage to get in touch with the sylvia rivera law project and they were super helpful and nice and um they helped me like change my name and gender on my documents and then I did an internship with them um for a semester so that was nice um how did you hear about them I'm trying to think uh i think i met someone maybe i met dean spade at a event or something and uh he asked me to contact someone to help help out with my um and they were super um super helpful basically that's cool um and trying to um and like i kind of got involved with like anarchist politics and at that time um i think that's how i met them too but i never kind of felt comfortable completely in the activist community it, um uh there's kind of always this weird like similarity i noticed between the activist and the academic where the there's kind of this pressure to like push yourself as hard as you can until you burn out um which uh always like made me uncomfortable um and i'm still like trying to find where i exactly fit in or belong now you know you you know you you started studying arabic in undergrad yeah yeah so uh, tell me a little bit about that um well it was kind of an ac- i don't know if it, looking back it was an accident but um uh i was just interested in a bunch of i wanted to be a creative writing major and a gender studies major obviously <laughs> um but i never like um i kind of felt like the women's studies classes were 
Um, for one thing, they gave w- assigned way too much work. Um, like they had to sort of prove that they're, you know, a serious class or something. Um, and it was kind of like, um, I just, I guess I wasn't like comfortable with the way that, um, gender was this very like cold sort of academic thing that, um, yeah, and just the requirements were like ridiculous to, to major, um, in it and similarly with creative writing I was I was kind of like I never really felt comfortable um with the sort of workshop format of creative writing where you kind of share your work with all these people that you don't know what their like belief systems are and so on and you know open and I remember like opening myself up to criticism in a way that was really like difficult for me to to take like I remember coming out crying several times after a workshop uh, workshop and um, and like feeling really like crap <laughs> um, and so I and I happened to like find find out that the Middle East and South Asian studies major was like had lot less requirements and you know was like much more open open ended the only thing was that you had to take a language um and I was just kind of like well I don't want to study Hindi that's would be so stereotypical um so I was like why not Arabic um, and that's kind of how it started. And so you were studying Arabic pretty much immediately after post after nine eleven. I uh, almost yeah. Like I guess I started in two thousand four. So just yeah. um, I knew the alphabet as a kid because my grandma like um, one she just wanted to make some attempt to make sure the heritage of Urdu was not like lost on her grandchildren. So she like taught me the alphabet um but I didn't know so I had like some idea and not and the like whatever common vocabulary there is um but yeah so it was yeah three years after mm-hmm. 9-11 basically so or a little less than three years after 9-11 did you did you um looking back on that time what what effect or impact did 9-11 like have if any on the teaching or learning of Arabic at Columbia for you or did it well I remember that I remember um that when I started it was just around when the demand for Arabic had become like was starting to like really get big and getting into like a class was a big uh problem in and of itself or like a big uh a big thing um for those who who were interested um and what am i 
Yeah, I remember talking to people later, uh, later on, who were a bit older, and them saying that like, um, you know, our, when they studied Arabic, po- pre nine eleven, it was, um, it was a lot different. It was kind of like studying some other, some anything else that's kind of obscure and not like French or Spanish or whatever, and. It was kind of like cute and nerdy and whatever, and it didn't. There wasn't like this, um, you know, sort of huge political uh, weight attached to it. Um, I don't remember there being that many like wannabe spies or anything in my in my class, uh, in my cl- or in the cl- Arabic classes. Uh, a lot of like people who sort of I don't know want to I guess because Colombia had like a policy school and so on of with a lot of like do-gooders who want to like save the hungry children or whatever um so I think there are quite a few of those um and then like the academic types also um who often like don't have any sense of politics um although like i i think it's good to some extent to to not try to over politicize the classroom because then things can get like extremely petty um i remember in my advanced class our teacher um who was really really good like tried um uh you know, would kind of steer that every time someone, like, criticized Zionism, he would try to sort of keep the discussion onto, like, whatever story we were talking about and not, like, go into polemic Mm. just to, like, not waste the time, which I think was good. Had you uh, traveled to the Middle East before taking Arabic? Uh, No, I hadn't, no. Um... I think that's good, probably. Uh, Palestine was actually the first Middle Eastern country I went to. And Unless you count transiting in Dubai. <laughs> well, I don't. No. <laughs> um, wh- and I was actually denied entry into Dubai recent, like last year, oh, which wow. was really ironic. And on the basis of my gender, basically. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? Uh, it was really strange and bizarre and kind of like weird. Um, uh, I was just supposed to spend a night there between uh, like transiting planes and uh, um, uh, in order to go to the hotel I had to like enter the country officially and immediately as like the passport person saw me they were like uh uh-uh. and I got, I went into this whole thing of where like these and they never like gave me the chance to like show that I knew Arabic so I didn't um and I like heard them like they like body scanned me the way that they do with drug smugglers and I heard them like discussing my genitalia and then like asking me like what really are you and um in English. Yeah, but then discussing my genitalia in Arabic. Um, and, like, uh, 
and um, my dad and stepmom were traveling with me and I heard yeah I heard them like making fun of them uh, for like not being ashamed of their kid um, it was all like but it was all like it was just to like spend 10 hours there basically um, and I didn't have to get thankfully I didn't have to get deported because they were just like you can you can't enter you can go back to transit lounge so you stayed in the airport for yeah, 10 hours yeah. because of your, you know, their Gen- pers- yeah, perception. their perception of, because they said I'm a liar. Uh, that like, even though like I showed them my other IDs, which say I'm female, um, they were like, you can't enter the country like this. And once, once you are fully a woman, you can enter the country. They said this to you? Yeah. Um, wow. Which was like... That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was that the on the flight, uh, f- the short flight from India to Dubai, I was like watching a movie made by a Emirati poet about uh, um, like the traditional fishing trade in the Emirates and kind of being like, oh, it's, you know, they're not just all like oil sheikhs they have culture and and history and you know blah 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 and then that that happened that sounds awful um i mean it was like i'm glad you were with your father and your stepmom at least to just well it wasn't like it didn't like make much of a difference really um they didn't like threaten me or hurt me they're just kind of like treated me like this bizarre alien that you know couldn't be trusted or something now so okay so dialing it back a little bit Mm. when did you go to Palestine and can you tell me a little bit about that trip um well I've been to Palestine three times the first time was for a short visit and the second time and third time were for like a longer um trip um I got very interested while I was studying Arabic in Palestine solidarity um, activism and kind of thought it would be like, because they didn't, in school, they didn't really teach uh, colloquial Arabic um, and uh, they only taught like Fusha, which is book, uh, you know, formal or classical Arabic. Um, and I was like, I wanted to like watch movies and speak with people and so on. So I thought maybe that would be like a good way to um <laughs> Yeah, that I thought that would be a good way to like although I kind of found out later that it well, it was kind of a good way, but it wasn't like really my scene completely. Actually, most of the people that I interacted with had, like, they kind of thought that learning to read and write Arabic was a waste of time because I want to, like, speak to the street and whatever. So it's kind of this, like, anti-intellectual attitude. Um, Did you have trouble getting into Palestine with your gender? Uh, not with my gender, but... Um, I did get interrogated because my name doesn't really 
doesn't really sound it doesn't really sound Muslim exactly, but it doesn't really sound like Western either. And so there was just like a lot of questions of like, are you a Muslim? Are you why are you sure you're not a Muslim? Like, is anyone in your family Muslim? Um, like how my and in fact, my mom's family are Jewish, but it doesn't reflect in my name. Um, and yeah, so in the end, I was I was able to get in, um, although it's not something I, I really look forward to. And I would definitely not want to go in through the airport again, for sure. Um, I'd rather uh, try one of the land borders. And. So you've traveled quite a bit throughout the Middle East. Uh, yeah, more in the the Levant than, yeah. and I've been to Morocco as well, and, briefly. And um, did you encounter these, you know, because a lot of people haven't had quite that ability to travel as much, mm-hmm. who are gender nonconforming or yeah. trans. Have you, you know, what? What have been some of your experiences traveling? Um, Besides, I know that Dubai was not was that terrible. That was like the worst. Well, it was in an yeah. That was pretty much. Um, in other places, like I get asked. Uh, I got asked in Egypt and about my gender, but they kind of left it at just questions. Um, and the fact that I had a U.S. passport, like I guess, made them respect me more um did you have any issues like being like going through your day-to-day yeah absolutely um i mean mostly i guess i was perceived as like an effeminate man and i had to deal with what that uh engendered um i often would would occur to me like it's actually kind of cool that like the large majority of people aren't like harassing me in the street it's there's a lot of people but look at all these other people that just walk by (laughs) and isn't that cool (laughs) um but um i liked it when i caused confusion about my perceived gender um, I didn't like it when I was read as like a uh, effeminate man or drag queen because that would bring out more hatred. Um, and I often wonder like what is it that propelled me? I just really had like a dedication to language that I was willing to put up with a lot of things for. Um, and yeah i mean i think i was read mostly as as masculine but not a traditional masculinity what can you tell me um a story of one of your favorite teachers that you've had because you've been studying arabic for a long time yeah can you tell me about it i haven't been studying in a class for quite a long time now um but uh um, I think my third year of Arab, my senior year at Columbia was when it, I had a, two really, really good teachers, um, who, uh, 
really pushed me a lot and like helped me sort of take a big leap. Um, one was Tunisian and the other is Lebanese. Um, and both, uh, I think like encouraged me to like make this a major part of my life. Although probably, um, I would have liked to do something other than a PhD. I don't think it's been bad to do a PhD necessarily. And, uh, so did you ever go to Syria? Were you able to? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You went to Syria too? Um, I was in Syria in 2008. Can you talk to me a little bit about that experience? Um, it was a little bit different in terms of like, you know, Egypt and Palestine are, are more globalized, I guess, in terms of like internet and phone. Like the cities. Um, in terms of like infrastructure and so on, um. Uh, Syria there was a little bit more closed and some things were a little more difficult and there was more bureaucracy um, also for US citizens because there were like extra uh, security measures or I don't know what uh, uh, but um, so like it was easier for like Europeans to get residency or whatever or to come in and out of the country than it was for Americans. Um, but I was there about six or seven months. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. In which city? In Damascus. Uh, Studying Arabic? Y- yeah, and just like private lessons. Um, I took a Persian class there too, because it was uh, at the Iranian Cultural Center. And how was that? It wasn't, the teacher was nice. He, like, he praised Ahmadinejad a bit, but he was a sort of nice guy. And the the textbook had examples like Muslims of the world defend Palestine or something. Wow. Can you, you know, now Syria obviously is in a very different place, and it's Mm -hmm. interesting to hear your perspective because you have such a unique subject position mm-hmm. as someone who's studying the language, etc. Mm-hmm. And I um, remember that one unique thing was like interacting with all the Kurdish people in Damascus. Yeah, in Damascus, uh, a lot of the poorer Kurdish people worked in restaurants and cafes and stuff. And w- uh, when they found out I was Indian, uh, that they were really happy because they felt like. I was their Aryan brother or something against the the Arabs who were oppressing them. Um, but in all conducted through Arabic, of course. Mm-hmm. And they would like ask me random words in Kurdish and be like, is this the same word in your language? Wow. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, I guess there's a bunch of common vocabulary through Persian, because uh, Kurdish has a lot of Persian words. Can you talk to me a little bit about what, like, your day-to-day life was during that seven-month period in Damascus? Like, what was, just, like, get um, me a sense of what it was like living in that city in 2008. Um, I mean, also, it was a little closed off in the sense of, like, a lot of broader swathe of people were not used to interacting with with foreigners and that was kind of one of the 
attractions of going there was that you would have to do everything in Arabic. Um, but, you know, I would, like, go to... Uh, I would have my lessons. I would, like, do my reading. I would... Um, I think I volunteered for a little while at the uh, UN Palestinian Refugee Agency um, and then stopped uh, teaching English conversation. Um, yeah, and I mean, a lot of time went by just trying to, like, settle down and find a place to live and that sort of thing. And then by the time it did happen, it was kind of time to go. <laughs> Um, so what was your living situation when you were there? Uh, I was living with some other... Um, I was living with another American who I probably shouldn't have, have lived with. It would have been easier. Um, a lot of... I know a lot of foreigners wanted, lived in the old city in, like, house, in houses, uh, traditional houses that whose rooms were rented out, but... I never really wanted to, I didn't feel comfortable living in a walled city. Um, and... Did you have any sense of, like, the political climate at that time? Oh, I mean, it was funny that, like, you kind of just internalized the repression very easily. Like, you know, I hardly ever found myself talking about, like the government or Assad in in public like you know it was just like normal you know um uh, what else um although there was I mean there was criticism of like the government constantly or of corruption or nepotism or or whatever but never of the president or of the party. Um, and of the Ba'ath Party. Yeah. The party. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> what other party? Well, I mean, for... Well, actually, the, technically... For the listeners. For technically, there, it's a... The, the Ba'ath Party is part of the national, like, coalition or something, but the other parties are there just in name. Um... And, yeah, so it was, um, but I did, like, I did, uh, study, one of the people I studied with, uh, was a Palestinian, um, who had been, who knew, like, some dissidents and who had contact with, uh, other dissidents, and so, you know, we would talk about politics and stuff, um, like, in the home and also uh, some of the lessons I was taking were at the French Institute for the Near East and uh, some of the teachers there would show like banned films uh, inside to the classes like inside the the Institute. Now um, a couple years ago I got an email from uh an Arabic professor, she's American, she's mm -hmm. um, not Middle Eastern, but she she said, you know, do you have any advice on how to help my student who's gender, queer, or trans, I don't recall mm. what it, which, how they identified, but basically this person 
after a semester or maybe a year of doing Arabic said, I can't deal with how gendered this language oh. is and stopped. And so this professor oh, was sad. reaching out to me and said, is there a way, are there other words, you know, that will maybe be of interest to them about gender and sexuality or, you know, have, do you know people who have this issue? Well, if she's the Arabic professor, shouldn't she? Well, not, not all of them are up to speed if they're, you know, yeah. if they're straight or they're yeah. not exposed to I mean, it is things. a super gendered language. There's no way getting, like, yeah. no way to get around that. Um, but I don't think the issue is in the language so much. I mean, Persian is a completely gender neutral language. Like, you don't know if you're saying he or she, you're talking about he or she when you're talking about someone in the third person, but... Obviously, Iran isn't the greatest place for a transgender person to be. So I don't, it doesn't quite, you know, it's not that, uh, I don't know how to say, like, it's not that automatic or like Hebrew, um, for example, um, is even more gendered than Arabic because in the, uh, when you speak Hebrew and you're like, saying you know speaking in the first person as a present tense as a verb that's gendered whereas in arabic that's not gendered um but you know whether is it like you know in some some parts of israel yeah i guess it's like easier to be uh uh gender non-conforming at least um, you know, not to be pink washing or anything, mm-hmm. but you know, that's a like basic reality, sure. Um, so I, I mean, it's not that like, you know, I, I don't think the, the, the relationship is that like linear. Um, I mean, then of course there's like the whole discuss like rich, uh, like literature on gender and sexuality that there is from medieval Arabic that really like gave me an I think an extra boost towards continuing uh, in the language although it didn't end up being my thesis topic I think I wish it had but you know there's all the this like so many different I think like dozens or hundreds of books on sex and and gender um, and all different in the fields of like literature and like you know anecdotes and even in religion of uh you know of like detailing everything basically um and like uh and even like compend like linguistic compendiums of like all the different words for genitalia starting from the beginning of the arabic alphabet to the end of the arabic alphabet and it's like hundreds and hundreds of words Oh man, I can only cover like three or four letters. Yeah. I don't know all twenty six letters. I have yeah. to read that. I mean the letters of the Arabic yeah, alphabet. Yeah, no. yeah. Well, I'm thinking like kaf. Yeah. You know. Um, so um, and these were all like, I mean, I think the issue. If I, I mean, they're mostly most of what is we have was written by men, um, and like men, but they were like the paradoxes, like they were like men of religion and. Many of them were deeply, like, pious, but yet they still had this attitude to knowledge that was, you know, whereas, like, uh, 
everything had to be talked about and dealt with and um there's even like a great quote by one of them al-jahiz where he's like you know people who complain about words like dick and pussy and whatever uh that they're um you know that they're like immoral or that they're like offensive you know should shut up because if these they wouldn't have been they words these words wouldn't exist if they weren't meant to be used um but you know i think like social attitudes can change a lot i also think like the intense gendering of the language like makes it possible to play more mm-hmm. with gender like the word for vagina or for pussy that's used in current colloquial arabic is is masculine gendered same thing in french vagina is masculine le vag- yeah le vagin mm-hmm. so yeah. is queen was uh tr- in medieval french queen oh, really? was uh, masculine see yeah. you know something about language that i don't i know those two facts <laughs> yeah what was it in medieval french um it was still it was still the same noun but it was just masculine oh ren interesting i know that in german the word for girl is neutral is neuter gendered das mädchen well are we surprised yeah (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) or for child also das kind Hmm. um so um i let's just i just have to pause for one sec So, um, so I guess my final question as we wrap up is, um, I I guess I just want to say to the student that like, don't despair. Like there's a lot of, uh, gold pots at the end of the dark tunnel that are awaiting if you like, if you persevere right now. That's, I wish I had, I wish I had said that I responded and I just said, well, they should keep studying it, but Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't. I didn't have an eloquent, mm-hmm. informed response, yeah. sadly. But um, I guess my last question is, you know, you've you've lived in a lot of different places. You've studied, you know, different languages, etc. Mm-hmm. How um, how do you feel? Has has your study of other languages and you know living in different places, etc. How has that impacted your understanding of your own gender? I guess I know that's a big question, mm. but that's just, or has it? Or I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's big. definitely shown me that gender is a performance and also um, helped me see that, like, sometimes passing or, like, how my gender is perceived has, may have, you know, I may have no intention of, you know, being perceived as... Uh, more feminine one day and yet I would be which was interesting to me Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess it just shows how much it's about perception to a large extent for me Um, or it's shown me that um, where like some random uh, aspect of my appearance or you know my gate you know like will like completely uh, alter the perception or the same perception uh 
would be perceived differently. The same like appearance or whatever would be perceived in differently depending on where. Um, and um, I guess the one thing I didn't dare to do in the Middle East was use the women's bathrooms. I was too scared. Um, except, well, maybe in Palestine once I did, but it was like a single. And even then, like all the like the people at the restaurant were like, why'd you go to the women's bathroom? That's like, un it's they said it's ishi sabiktir like it's really you know yeah it's really tough yeah no but by <laughs> sab like really they like... mean like there's really like you crossed a boundary right 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 I was just like oh it was open like I didn't pay attention right right like it's tough for us to deal with yeah like it's yeah. I can't imagine doing yeah. that um so yeah it's like um but I feel like there's kind of a uh, playfulness in the language that uh, has the potential to be exploited a lot, and the like rich sexual heritage of the in the language itself is what motivates motivates me, um, and um, yeah, I guess the the lit the poetry. Um, in in a sense is like very gender you know crosses all boundaries of gender for me the poetry that I like that is I think that's a good note to yeah. end on thank you so much for talking mm -hmm. and being willing to go in so uh, many yeah. different directions with Thanks. me sure um, I really appreciate it yeah. and I'm glad that you're this conversation as part of this project oh yeah you're yeah. most welcome thank I you. I want to. I have to listen to the others. Now. Oh yeah. Oh, please yeah. do. They're really good. Right. Did you 